Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS On Air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much, and welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel, our co-host. Carol is a nationally known gerontologist, serves as the executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation, and has a master's degree in gerontology from the University of UIL. From the, from the UIL. From the University of the Incarnate Word. That's it. I, they don't say it that way, though. Don't they say it they backwards? say UIW. UIW, yeah. Okay, that's because yeah, it's UIL is the word. competition for schools. Exactly. So that's we'll get it you've straight. Heard that. I have heard that. You have heard it. Wow, that's pretty cool. So <laughs> I want to talk a little bit about our guest who's coming on in just a couple of moments, Sunil Wadwa, who's with a company that has a test that is used by some clinics and some hospitals that takes a look at the potential for adverse drug reactions. And he'll talk about that issue. A lot of people die. Well, that's it, you know. He is, he, you know, the information he sent us, he is correct. There are more adverse drug reactions than most people realize. Um, and, you know, the interaction of food with drugs, the interaction of drugs with drugs, and then the things that you're just allergic to. There are a lot of things that can go wrong with medications. So we'll talk about that with Sunil Wadwa in just a couple of moments. But I want to begin with something that was very much in the news, uh, and it's, on new exercise guidelines, and you've got a behind-the-scenes look at what it's all about, how it works, and why it works. Well, this is, you know, it's interesting because the last guidelines that came out were from 2008, uh, and that was kind of novel to even have exercise guidelines at all. Um, And at that time, you know, looking at the, uh, you know, the literature and the tests that they had run, you know, we came up with 150 minutes of exercise, which, which we still have, but there was a feeling that you had to do it a certain length of time. And so it was like you had to go out there like and do the 30 minutes or do at least 10 minutes of really vigorous activity. Um, and so the new guidelines, what's the difference? And this, we're talking 779 pages, all of which I will read to you right now. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> no, no. This portion I'm of the program. Save you. See what we're saving you? We're <laughs> yeah, saving exactly. you incredible amounts of time. Is that they're still calling for the 150 minutes of moderate intensity exercise or 75 minutes of the vigorous intensity exercise a week. Um, this is the first time they have suggested exercise intervals for children. So this is new. Um, kids between the ages of three and five need three hours a day of non-sedentary behavior. Um, but the new, the big thing is you don't have to do the 30 minutes or even the 10 minutes. We, you know, we are so in the know because it was probably two years ago, I think, the first research that came out that said, what if you just did two minutes right. of exercise, those little mini workouts? Yeah, we loved that. And we were loving the little two-minute workouts. Well, it's even better than that. It's, it is, yes, the two minutes are fine, but it's any exercise, whatever the amount of time. So walking up the stairs counts. The, lo- the parking place at the end of the parking lot, the couple of minutes that it takes counts. Everything you do that requires exertion, 
no matter how short it is, adds up to those 150 minutes. How is that for I'm a so, nice change? I'm so glad to hear that. I don't ever have to go to the gym again. You don't have, and that, that was the whole point. So now let's go behind the scenes. Um, I have the privilege of serving on the Community Advisory Committee for the University of Texas UT Health um, Barshop Institute. And this is the institute that looks at, you know, longevity, how do we, it's, it's the genes and the white mice and uh, I don't know, naked mole rats. I think they have those too. So they're doing the, they're doing the cutting edge research. And we had a presentation from uh, a med, an MD a doctor who they participated in this study and he, all his specialty was physical therapy. So we're all excited. We're all happy. We're happy, 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 because now we've got 150 minutes of exercise and everything counts. Then he says, what's not, you know, in this published yet, because there's still some research, is looking at sedentary lifestyle. And he says, if you sit for five hours a day, at least five hours a day, five or more hours a day, as does almost everybody who is working, then you have to double that. So bye-bye 150 minutes. Now we're at 300 minutes. In the whole room, all of our faces fell all at the same time. I'm sure. Because only 20% of the population gets the 150 minutes, and all of us sit down too much. So there are people, if you're listening to this and you don't sit down at a desk all day or sit down and watch TV all day, but if you do sit down, then he says, you know, yay, everything counts, but you're going to have to double that amount, which was... Wow. Kind of. Mm. So that that was one thing interesting. The other interesting thing that he talked about um, was looking at types of activity. So this we're going to go back on the good side. Their research supports what's in, in this. They looked at people who get physical therapy following, let's say, a surgery, a hospital stay. And, and they're, they're recommended for physical therapy, like when you had your knee surgery. Right, right. And they looked at the physical therapy where, you know, a, a, it's very um, prescriptive. You get uh, 10% on balance and 20% on strength. And this, you know, all the physical therapy is designed to do all these different kinds of strength building and get you back on your feet. So they compared the very prescriptive um, physical therapy to people who just walked. That's all they did. They just walked. And when they compared the two groups, the people who walked had the same or better outcomes as the people that had the fancy physical See, therapy. See, now that's why my orthopedic surgeon, now retired, unfortunately, Dr. Uvapadius, uh, did not send me to high-impact physical therapy. He, he said it was great for his business because very often they often did, re, did too much and he had to do new reconstructive surgery. So it was great for his cash flow. But he said the best thing is just get up and when, when you're you know, able and you're pretty quickly able after knee replacement surgery to walk, just walk. Yeah, just walking. And so that is, he, he the, you know, the presentation was about we have to educate the doctors to tell right. people exactly what your doctor was saying was just get up and walk. Yes. And the faster that you get up walking, the better. And I think the cutoff point was 4,000 steps, people that walked, you know, after surgery, people that worked their way up to 4,000 steps a day or more, had significantly lower complications and rehospitalizations as people that walked 2,000 steps and below. Wow. 
So if you're listening to this and you've had a loved one that's had some sort of surgery or hospital stay, like it could be pneumonia, you know, because when you go to the hospital, we all know that um, people lose a, a little bit of that physical vitality because they're laying in bed for several days. They're probably not getting up and walking, even if they're not having knee surgery. They just have pneumonia or the flu or whatever. You just don't get that amount of activity in the hospital. But the people who do walk in the hospital and then they get out and they do the 4,000 steps can actually do better than people that go to physical therapy. So I thought that was fascinating. It's pretty cool. The funny thing for me, I'd run into all kinds of people around town who would say, oh, man, that physical therapy must be killing you. And I would tell them, well, I actually, I don't do that. Here's well, what I do. Well, and then the, then the other fascinating piece from this research, uh, and this is all, I hope this is not proprietary because, okay, I'm going to get kicked off the committee. <laughs> There's more research to be done. Um, they were talking to people who had had uh, joint replacements. So why does one have a joint replacement? Because the joint's no longer working right. Because it's not working right. And pain. And you want to, so you want to get rid of the pain, and you want to be able to do the things that you used to do. Correct. So they did a study across all these different joint replacements, and they looked at physical activity after a joint replacement. And in almost 100% of the cases, people with joint replacement never got back to the level of activity that they had before. So he's saying, he was saying, in this country, in the United States, joint replacement is very palliative. We are getting rid of the pain, but what we are not doing is supporting the people to get back to the level of physical activity they used to have for whatever reasons, you know, and this may be cultural, because Americans, you know, only, only 20% of the folks are, are getting that 150 minutes of exercise. So somebody asked him, what's your recommendation? And they said that Medicare should pay to get people up to 150 minutes of exercise, that you should be supported with physical therapy training until you can do that 150 minutes of exercise uh, after you've had a joint replacement. To, that's the full recovery. Well, that's a good point. So I thought all of that, it was, it was very interesting. Um, and, and again, even if you had to go to 300 minutes, it's not all at once. No, no, no. The three hundred and he so said, walking you know, my dog counts. Walking your dog counts. Pulling weeds in the garden counts. Climbing the stairs after the kids. Vacuuming the house counts. Climbing the stairs. So it's it's non sedentary behavior, and that is defined as you're not laying down and you're not just sitting. So if you are standing, you're standing and moving. The bar's pretty low here to start ticking off wow. those minutes. Um, the other interesting thing we talked about minutes and steps a minute ago. I said that he recommended, you know, if you've had a hospitalization, you want to get to 4,000 steps and above to prevent rehospitalization. These new guidelines do not talk about those magic 10,000 steps. The number of recommended steps is not in the new guidelines. Why? Because there's not any, because that number is made up, you know, as, as has been discussed, that's not the magic number. Um, it really has to do with minutes of exercise more than steps that you take. Uh, so all of us can do better. We're, we're only in the holidays. No one's thinking about exercise right now. But come January, this is going to be the hot topic. I've already got you all prepped. 
So if you're sedentary, your goal is 300. Um, otherwise, it's 150, but everything counts. So walking to the buffet and table. Walking, just walking. You know, you, the biggest bang for the buck has always been from couch potato to getting up and doing something. And this, these guidelines really support that. And this research I was talking about, it's walking. If you don't do anything, just take a, walk a little bit extra. If we took remotes away from everybody and they had to get up to change the channel on their TV. Like the old days. Like the old you days. You want to take us back to the dark ages when we changed our own channel, Ron. God forbid, right? <laughs> That's right. So walk around. If it's bad weather, you know, where you live, rain, snow, sleet, walk around your living room, do laps in your house. But those little steps for you and the person you're caring for will make all the difference in your health. I like this. So my caregiver wife, when I was recovering, was right. She was right. When I said, gee, I could use some water, and she would say, go up and get it. There you go. See, yeah. you thought she was being mean. Yeah, don't tell her. I won't tell her. Okay, we can't let her listen to this show. <laughs> nope. We're going to talk in a moment about adverse drug reaction, and we don't mean taking bad drugs. We mean any drug you may take can cause a problem. How do you prevent it? How do you know you're at risk? And we're going to talk with Sunil Wadwa about that right here on Caregiver SOS On Air with me, Ron Aaron, and Carol Zerniel. You hear us at 930 a.m., The Answer. You ever wonder what you can learn from listening to WellMed Radio? Hi, I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Cora Juke, is here, nurse practitioner. What can folks learn from WellMed Radio? You know, we talk about a lot of things such as chronic disease management, how to manage your diabetes, your blood pressure, but we also talk about social issues such as what WellMed offers and what you can do to improve your health and improve your life. You can catch WellMed Radio Sundays at 5 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Well, as we've been promising, we take up a very interesting topic now on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel. The topic is adverse drug reactions. And if you talk to folks in the medical community, they will tell you, yes, they do happen. And we're going to talk with a gentleman who is involved in developing a test and a program to screen for possible adverse drug reactions, depending on what prescription drugs you may be taking. And it's a pleasure to welcome to our Caregiver SOS on our hotline, Sunil Wadwa, who is with Medex Prime. Uh, they've developed a test that could be a lifesaver. And Sunil, thanks for joining us. Great to be here, Ron. Thank you so much for having me. Now, you're not a doctor, neither Carol nor I are doctors, but you developed a test designed to help doctors do what? Well, just for full clarity, we did not develop the test. We are working with a brilliant world-class lab in promoting this test that has actually been out for about 14 years. Uh, trust me, Ron, if I had developed this test, uh, I'd be on an island floating somewhere. <laughs> just for full clarity, I did not develop this test. We are promoting it heavily. We're educating. Our mission is to uh, bring this to light uh, for the medical community as well as everyone out there in the country um, it's very unknown, although it's been, again, in the market for 14 years. Well, talk about adverse drug reactions. Is it, is it a big problem? Uh, do, do people look for this? Is this something we talk about normally? Talk a little bit about the problem your, this test addresses. Carol, thanks for that question. Uh, it, it's really uh, amazing, uh, lack of better words, that adverse drug reactions are now the fourth leading cause of death. How do you know that? 
well, stats have shown that it's not our numbers. It's actually a, a number provided by the FDA. So, okay. well, there's the answer. Um, it's a, it's a, pardon me? I say, no, there's the answer. I'm always, when people throw out stats, I always like to know where they come from. Absolutely. You'll never get a stat from me that's not validated. Uh, it is scary. It is the fourth leading cause of death. In fact, some publications recently have even ranked it as the number third, third leading cause of death. But we, we continue to use number four as, as the number that was provided by the FDA. Right. And, and so what happens? Why do people end up with prescription drugs that may kill them? And how do you get involved with this test? Well, uh, adverse drug reactions, uh, of course, pretty self-explanatory, but for those that want a full clarity, it's an unexpected and potentially dangerous response to medication. Look, there's a place for medication, so this is not about attacking medication, but the idea here is wouldn't it be better as a patient to get the right medication, the right dosage, right from the beginning? And that's what this test does. It's a very simple test that's administered by your doctor's office or, or staff member in the office. Very simple Q-tip in the mouth. It's rubbed one minute on one side, another minute on the other side. Two of them go into our lab. Lab sends back a report that says, based on Carol, obviously Carol's body is different than yours, Ron, or mine, obviously. Our DNA makeup, our genetic makeup, our metabolism is all different. What this test does comes back to the doctor. The doctor now knows, based on Carol, what medications she can have, what dosages would work for her, and more importantly, what would not work for her. Now, now what is the doctor? It's really what, that simple. What, what is she seeing that tells her all that? The doctor. So without getting, yeah, without getting into the weeds, we have certain genes that metabolize medication. And so the doctor is seeing a very detailed and yet very simple report on that patient, again, outlining based on that genetic makeup, based on the metabolism of that uh, patient, what they can handle, and again, more importantly, what they cannot handle. So it gives that roadmap, if you will, in layman's terms, the doctor can now prescribe the right meds uh, right from the beginning, as, as we all know. Uh, and I, this is with all due respect to the medical community, but when a doctor prescribes a medication today, it is trial and error. And it's as simple as that. They'll prescribe a medication. It doesn't suit us for whatever reasons, whatever complications, whatever reactions we may have. We call the doctor, and the doctor then has to adjust the medication. You know, come on in, and we'll try something else. And what I'm stating is something that most everyone that's on medications has, has, has experienced. And this avoids that. Well, I think that, you know, when we look historically at the use of medications and just tests in general, so for years and years, decades, actually, the only test, you know, on medications and any kind of health issues, it was primarily um, Anglo young men. And so, you know, then all of a sudden we realized people are different, <laughs> that an older person right. doesn't metabolize medication the same way as a younger person, even though that is not widely um, taught and, and sort of internalized in, in medical school. Um, and so the idea that, that not only are age groups different, men and women are different, ethnic groups are different. So now you're saying that you know we can really really tailor 
the medication to the individual with everything that we know about them using this test. Which is, I gather, a genetic screening. That's right. Yeah. It's, again, about uh, the, the metabolism of, of our body and what we can assimilate uh, and what we cannot assimilate in, in really bottom line terms as to what this test does. And, and, and mind you, again, uh, make sure the audience is clear that this is not something experimental. The FDA approved this test 14 years ago, and very well-known clinics in the country use it today. Uh, Mayo, Stanford, Johns Hopkins, Vanderbilt. Uh, in fact, uh, I, I bow to St. Jude's Research Hospital because two years ago they made a decision to test every patient with this brilliant test. And yet, today, you and I can walk out our doors, whether you're in California, New York, or Timbuktu, as they say, and I challenge anybody to go talk to 100 doctors today, and, and you'll be hard-pressed to find maybe one or two that may know about it. And even if they say they know about it, frankly, with all due respect, they don't know about it. Now, it and it's one of those really dumbfounding things that I've found out there over the last five years that we've been out there in the market educating folks about this brilliant test. Is it expensive and covered by insurance? Yeah, great question. Um, Medicare uh, will cover this test. Uh, of course, there's uh, uh, some medical necessity uh, information that the doctor sends in, but we're seeing that uh, uh, those that have had uh, any kind of adverse reaction, which unfortunately most patients do, uh, will most likely be covered under Medicare. In fact, Medicaid now is covering the test in 18 states, and as well as many insurance companies are stepping up and realizing the benefits. In fact, a recent article just came out uh, uh, from Think Advisor uh, that states that by giving this one time, by the way, this is a one-time lifetime test. It's not something that we need weekly, monthly, annually. It's a one-time lifetime test. Well, your genes and stay so, the same. Right. And, and so the article came out that, that clearly showed um, what we think is a very conservative number, but whatever. They, they show that an insurance company stepping up and paying for this or Medicare or whatever is going to roughly save about $4,000 annually by putting that patient on the right medications and avoiding potential adverse drug reactions. All right, stay with me a minute, Sunil. We want to let folks know who may have just joined us. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel. We're talking with Sunil Wadwa, who is with MedEx Prime, and we are talking about an adverse drug reaction screening that can give a doctor and a hospital a heads up on what medications may or may not work for you. So with the the adverse drug reaction, for Medicare to cover it, would there have had to have been an adverse drug reaction prior to a requesting the test? Yeah, generally that's what the uh, Medicare folks are looking for. And, and again, Carol, it, it, most of us that are on medications have had a reaction in some capacity, some minor and some very major, of course. And if that has happened with that patient, which, again, most of patients have that issue, it's very simple for the doctor to administer that test and submit it uh, to our lab, and, and our lab is most likely going to get a, uh, a reimbursement on it. Well, I know that none of us are doctors, but for those people who don't know, they don't know what an adverse drug reaction is, what would be something that, what are some typical, you know, signs that someone is having an adverse drug reaction? Well, let me, let me share a couple of stories to emphasize um, that question, Carol. 
Um, this is not only about folks getting this test that have had reactions, but equally for those that may have reactions. For example, uh, just a couple of months ago, a very unfortunate story, a police officer at Texas A&M was rescuing a cat, and the cat bit him, and it went through uh, his glove. So he was given medical treatment in emergency. He was given a medication that caused a severe reaction and put him in ICU. Now, the drug was, was probably, drug was probably Augmentin, which is used for animal bites. I, I don't know the medication. It wasn't cited in the, uh, the news article that came okay. out about this. I did see I the story, though. Yeah, I saw the story. Right. I remember the story. Now, I used to run an animal shelter, and uh, plenty, oh, did you? Yeah. plenty of my people got yeah, bitten. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, sorry. Go that's ahead. okay. No, I'm just saying it, it's a penicillin-like medication that's often used. But that's okay. That, that's a non-sequitur. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Right. So, so he was put on a ventilator. He had such a severe reaction to this whatever medication it was. And unfortunately, the officer passed away. He died. Was, I think, oh, nine. I didn't, he I died. Didn't, yeah, I didn't hear that he'd passed away. I remember seeing the story because they were raising money for his treatment. Wow. Yeah, no, he died. And this was in a news article. I'm citing exactly verbatim out of that, uh, that uh, article. Uh, poor guy, you know. Um, we do a national uh, webinar just about every night in our company, and, and, and we reach out to educate everyone and anyone we can out there. And at the end of the webinar, we invite folks, as we'll invite your listeners, to give us a call, and we'll give them a one-page letter, which is a very clear, concise letter to take to their doctor and ask for this test. I mean, look, in my opinion, anybody taking a medication should get this test done because without it, it's playing Russian roulette, frankly. So we had a father join us on, on one of our webinars, and at the end he asked for the letter. Long story short, his, he called in about his daughter. His daughter had been dealing with a medical problem for 15 years. And over the last couple of years, she was regressing. So he took the letter to her doctor, and the doctor said, now nah, I don't believe in these tests. I've been practicing medicine for 35 years. Now hold that and, thought. Uh, we're so, we're going to come right back to you. That's, we can hang on that and come back to whether or not the daughter lives or dies. Your caregiver SOS on air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron along with Carol Zerniel, and we're talking about adverse drug reaction. Well, we are so pleased you have joined us today on Caregiver SOS on air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel. We were talking on our Caregiver SOS on Air hotline with Sunil Wadwa, who is with Medex Prime, talking about adverse drug reactions. And we were at the point where a father had asked for a letter explaining what an adverse drug reaction test is all about, took it to his daughter's doctor. The daughter said, poo-poo, I've been practicing medicine for 8 million years. I don't need this. <laughs> well put, Ron. So what like happened? That. Well, that first doctor said no to it, and, and so rightfully, in our opinion, patients should take it to another doctor. So the father did. He took it to her other doctor who said, absolutely, why would we not want more information? Test results come back. The second doctor says to the father, I'm surprised that your daughter is still alive because she's been on all the wrong medications and the wrong dosages, according to her results. So needless to say, he adjusted the meds and the dosages. And within 60 days, she was like a whole brand new woman. In fact, we invited the father on our national call. We have reps all over the country. We invited uh, him on a call, 
And this guy was literally crying, sharing this story. He says, you guys don't understand. I got my daughter back within 60 days because now she's on the right meds and the right dosages. So that's what this test does. And, 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 you know, look, on a very layman standpoint, so everybody's crystal clear, we all have had a blood test done, right? Why do we have a blood test done? So that the doctor can kind of have an insight to our body, of course, that they can't see inside our body. So we get a blood test done. Now the doctors know how to treat us according to the numbers that come back. Well, same thing with a urine test, same thing with an MRI, an X-ray, and so on. This is simply giving the doctor the insight to what you and I can handle from a medication standpoint. So what do you really think? What do you think the barrier has been uh, uh, to adapt and adopt this test uh, in all practices? Is it cost? You know, it's not a cost to the doctor in any way, shape, or no, form. No, but what is the we cost? We generally hear out there um, from practices as we talk to doctors and office managers and so on is that they don't have time to implement yet another test. And, and with all due respect, again, I, I love doctors, but that is a nonsense response that we hear. I don't accept that because I almost lost my, you might hear my passion in my voice about this. I almost lost my wife 10 years ago because of an adverse drug reaction. My father went through an open heart surgery seven years ago before we opened up our company. And I ran across this test sheer by accident. I was coming back from New York. Uh, in flight. I was bored. I started flipping through magazines, and I ran across this article on this test. And I got really upset because I reflected on my wife's situation and also my father's situation. And I wondered as I read that article, why in the world would my doctor, my father's doctor, cut the man open in half and then put him on myriad of medications without giving him the simple test? I got so upset, I got off the plane, called my team. I said, guys, we know nothing about this area, but we're going to research this and find out why in the world it's not, it's not being used. What happened and in your daughter's case? Our, sorry? What was your daughter's situation? What, wife's. Oh, your wife. I'm my wife, sorry. My wife. Your wife's yeah, situation. my wife. So, so my, <laughs> my wife uh, was uh, testing for a black belt in karate, jumped over a student, landed wrong. Her leg went snap, crackle, pop ended up surgery, seven screws and a plate later. And that evening, the floor of the hospital was on high alert because her breathing got extremely shallow. And it turned out, once we got into the space, got her test done, it comes to, uh, we find out that uh, she cannot metabolize morphine properly. What was she put on? Morphine. Right. Okay. So wouldn't it have been a good idea for that doctor, that surgeon, that team to know what she can handle, what she cannot handle. Well, I mean, I think that you you make a very good point. Uh, and for those that are listening that haven't had an experience with an adverse drug reaction, I know I've had. I'm allergic to penicillin. I've had, you know, didn't know what was going on at the time. But you know, an adverse drug reaction can be something mild that you don't really associate. Like in my case, uh, nausea with one drug. Another time, I broke out in hives. Or it can be like what you were describing with your wife where you're having a serious um, adverse reaction where all of a sudden you can't breathe. Well, let me um, jump in very quickly in your case because you feed feral cats occasionally. If you get a cat bite, as I was saying earlier, the drug of choice is Augmentin, which is a penicillin derivative. Right. So I wouldn't so want So you should know that. I wouldn't want to take that one. Right. But people don't realize, you know, how common these are. And I know for, you know, myself, I would love to know if there are families of medications 
A, that I should stay away from, or B, there's a family of medications that would work better than something that's more um, commonly accepted. I know when, you know, I get a chance to travel around the country and we listen to people kind of predicting where we're going in the future. And one of the things they talk about, you know, in, in the world of nutraceuticals where, I know this doesn't sound really pleasant, thank goodness we're on the radio, where, you know, in your toilet, you might have some sort of a sensor, um, and that'll tell you what vitamins you're low on. It could tell you, you know, if your medications are, how fast they're metabolizing. So what you're talking about, Sunil, really falls into that family of doing a better job, A, of knowing in advance what's happening, and B, tailoring the intervention to the person. Now, do you have to go through a doctor, or can I just call your company and say, uh, like, you know, like 23, 21, yeah, 23, 20, and, 23 me. and me. I started to say 21 and yeah, me. Yeah, 23 and me. Can I just call you? <laughs> we all know how to swab our cheeks no. and send it back to you. Yeah, the answer to that, sorry, Ron, uh, is, is no. Um, because? Because the report is very comprehensive and, frankly, very complicated. And not for, and not for us be. that aren't doctors. Well, yeah. I mean, we can we we wouldn't know what to do with that information. So it requires the doctor to to do it, and requires the doctor to review it and adjust accordingly. So this is administered through uh, the doctor's office. What we do for patients that call us or or the general population that's interested, we will arm them with a very clear, concise, one-page letter to take to their doctor next time they're they're at the doctor's or or a lot of our folks that call in will actually make an appointment immediately because they have somebody in the family right now that is dealing with some sort of reactions to medications. You know, we ask two questions, and, and if you don't mind, I'll ask this to all your listeners. Are you or anyone in your family on medication? And, and guess what the percentage response to yes is on that question? 97%. percentages. Yeah, exactly, right? I mean, look, 4 billion prescriptions are written in the U.S. today. 4 billion. The population is only 330 million, okay? So even if we take a subset of us that fortunately don't take meds, let's call it 250 million of us that are consuming 4 billion prescriptions. Point being is most all of us are on meds, and certainly most of us are on multiple meds. But the second question we we like to ask uh, folks to, to get their wheels turning is, have you or anybody in your family ever had a reaction to medication? Ron, what do you think the percentage to that question is in a yes response? Uh, 63%. Oh, We're thinking about 80 to 85%, by the way. I feel like I'm on, on let's make a deal because the price right? is right. <laughs> <laughs> so 80-something percent. 80-something percent is, okay, pretty, is higher. Sunil, I would have said 40 percent. I, I, I want to come back yeah. to something. I want to come back to something I, I asked you earlier. And on this one question, you are like nailing jello to a tree. Here's the question. If my insurance won't cover this, and you indicated if you haven't already had an adverse reaction, some insurance companies, maybe most, won't cover it, what's the cost? Because the doctor's not going to eat that cost. Of course not. Of course not. So, so there, if I want to order your test, clear. what does it cost? So there's four. Yeah. So there's four payments: Medicare, Medicaid, uh, some insurance companies, not all. And if no coverage is is rendered, then the patient is responsible for a one-time payment of twelve hundred seventy-five dollars. Um, in fact, our lab is so progressive that they uh, only take thirty percent uh, upfront, and then a payment of eighty-seven dollars monthly for the rest of the year. So So it's very inexpensive when you think about it. But let me also say this. We never, 
ever bill a patient, we do pre-authorizations. Our lab does pre-authorizations to make sure that that patient is going to be covered. And if they're not covered, they're always told up front. They have a choice whether they want to move forward or not. And, and, the, and the prescription, the request for the test, always has to come from a physician. That's correct. Okay, so I, we know we're not. You're not. We can't do any direct ordering. Unlike Twenty Three and Me, right. I can't just call yep. you up. Long as you're that's, looking at all that, right. all those genes, can you at least tell us what our ancestry is all about? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. What, <laughs> yeah. Really, you and could have a split the, business. <laughs> <laughs> and incidentally, the lab that that uh, we work with is the most comprehensive test in the market. Period. We do a fifty-three gene test which is the most comprehensive. There's only a few labs in the country that do the analysis of this test, but we have the best and the most comprehensive test in the country. Well, I stress that because some of the other labs do 18 genes, and uh, we found one that now is doing 28 genes. We have 53 genes, and not only do we do uh, the actual test, but it's even more comprehensive than that. It does also a drug-to-drug interaction. So, unfortunately, many... Uh, patients out there, certainly many Medicare patients out there are on multiple medications. So this test also shows that drug-to-drug interaction as well. And and many rely on their pharmacists to give them that information. Yeah, but uh, again, as I'm not saying it's the answer. Right. Yeah. Yeah. No, 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 we're not. We can't see inside our body, right? The the smart ones are are relying on their pharmacists. The ones that are relying on their physician may be the ones that are in trouble uh, because the physicians don't. A, what you were just talking about, Sunil, is they don't have time um, to to go through all that, and they don't stay up with all the drug interactions. Well, in some of the materials that you you sent us, um, you you mentioned uh, concerns about opioid use. So the opioids that are for pain medication that so many people have been prescribed, um, is there a relationship between this screening test and opioid use or over over uh, I should say overdosing with opioids? Yeah, that's a great question. As as we know, there's been a lot of stuff in the media about opioid. In fact, uh, President uh, uh, passed an emergency act back um, last year, October, I believe it was, and it's now a uh, opioid uh, emergency. Right, and it's very unfortunate. We're losing around sixty thousand people a year from prescribed opioid usage. Right, we're talking about prescriptions here, but the number that we're talking about from an adverse drug reaction is 125,000 deaths, which is more than double the number. And yet there's no spotlight on adverse drug reactions and a huge spotlight on this opioid uh, death number from uh, prescription drugs. So the point I'm making is 125,000 people are dying every year. Two million are being hospitalized every year. And of course, millions of us will experience an adverse drug reaction and deal with the consequences of that for the rest of our lives. All right, now we Uh, need to know... again, no spotlight being put on adverse drug reactions. We're about out of time, so before we let you go, if folks want to get more information or the letter you said you'd prepare for their doctor, how do they get it? 800-989-7703. 800-989-7703. Seven seven zero three, and no cost for that information from us. And 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 do you have a website where if people want to read about the test, they can get some more information? They can go to medxprime.com. So M E D, the letter X, 
and the word prime, all one word, of course, dot com. And I wish you would kick in an ancestry look at the same time. <laughs> you're still trying to get Throw that. Throw that to your well, team. Well, let me ask last one last question. One of the scariest presentations I ever heard was on medication interaction with common foods like grape jelly. You know, is is this lab and the geniuses, you know, the people that are working on the adverse drug reactions, are they also, you know, someday going to give us a test that will tell us about common foods and drug reactions? You know, they haven't uh, gone down that path yet, although they are hinting to us that they are looking at that uh, possibility. But right now they're fully focused. In fact, uh, they're working on uh, further enhancement on, on, on this test as well. First. All right. Well, let us know when that one comes out. I'll be interested to see it. And we thank you very much for your time. And again, uh, that phone number, if you want to get more information, is 800-989-7703. Anil Wadwa, thank you. Appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thank you so much for helping us put a very important spotlight on this topic. Okay. Bye-bye. Up next, we got it, right? Take 10 with Dr. Jamie Heisman. I'm Ron Aaron with Carol Zerniel. You're listening to WellMed Radio on 930 AM, The Answer. You ever wonder what you can learn from listening to WellMed Radio? Hi, I'm Ron Aaron. Our co-host, Cora Juke, is here, nurse practitioner, what can folks learn from WellMed Radio? You know, we talk about a lot of things such as chronic disease management, how to manage your diabetes, your blood pressure, but we also talk about social issues such as what WellMed offers and what you can do to improve your health and improve your life. You can catch WellMed Radio Sundays at 5 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Well, thank you so much for sticking with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. At the end of each show, we turn to Take 10 with Dr. Jamie Heisman, who joins us on the Caregiver SOS On Air hotline from Florida, nationally known psychotherapist, a specialist in addictions and caregiving as well. And Carol Zerniel is here. I'm Ron Aaron. You've got a neat topic to kick this off, and it is seasonal. Well, it is seasonal, and I think it's important that we talk about it during t- during this particular season. So, Jamie, you know, this is the time of year where all the lights go up, the trees go up, the craziness starts, um, and, you know, the holiday season is upon us, and all of a sudden we think we need to have a perfect holiday. Somehow the little snow globe scene, we think that we've got we to pull this off. Norman Rockwell. But it's really hard when you're a caregiver and you get so anxious about it. So what would you, what are good recommendations to have, quote unquote, a successful holiday season if you're a caregiver for someone with dementia or someone who has a you know, severe chronic illness? What would you tell them? You know, I bet you we could, between the three of us, come up with some excellent suggestions. But I have to echo what you're saying. This, this what is it, two-month stretch between Thanksgiving and New Year's, it's the most stressful time of the year for, for caregivers. Um, and if it's a stressful time for caregivers, don't forget it's a stressful time for those they care for. Because you and I know that if they're not on two legs taking care of themselves, then their loved one is feeling anxious and fearful. And, and the stress is not just about the caregivers, it's about the entire family system. So let's talk about it, just like you said. I mean, first thing I would do is start plan, plan, plan. I mean, make a holiday to-do list and a calendar and, and make sure at that point in time that you're actually 
figuring the family members in who are going to be a part of this and, and delegating effectively. Well, you know, I bet some people think that's the opposite. I bet there are people that think you shouldn't plan anything, so that way you just go with the flow. Why is planning a good idea? Well, you know, any parent, and, and you don't have to be a parent, but, but certainly parenting is, is the best example of this. You cannot raise a child unless they feel safe meaning they have to feel boundaries, they have to feel lines of demarcation, they have to feel like, you know, you, you're protecting them. And to do that, you have to make, you know, these type of boundaries. And that's what planning is all about in holidays in terms of making, you know, a list for, for family gatherings and who's going to do what on the parties and who's responsible for the cards. So, I mean, things can go awry. Murphy's Law and caregiving, and we all know that if something's going to go wrong, it will. But planning allows us to have a structure that we can all rely on. Now, one of the things I'd like to throw into that mix is look at your expectations. I ran into a friend uh, over the weekend, a woman who had gone for Thanksgiving to her mother's house, expecting the Thanksgiving she knew as a kid, and it was a disaster. Mother insisted on making the turkey, and you can guess what happened. It turned out to be terrible. Nothing worked right, and she was so disappointed. She's telling me this, and, and I asked her what her expectations were, and she said, well, to be like it always was. <laughs> expectations are the seeds of resentment. How many times have we said that on this show? I know. Expectations are the seeds of resentment. See, that would make 133 right there. <laughs> That's it. And, and so, the, I, back to that point, Ron, it's such, a, it's such a great point that you bring up, is that Really, the, the, the next suggestion, I would say, is make new traditions. Change the holiday around. Understand that there's a new normal here and don't have these type of expectations. What do you think, Carol? Well, I agree with you. And, and you know, that was something that I really took to heart uh, years ago when my mother first uh, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. And, you know, we had expectations during the holidays, and it, it just wasn't the same. They couldn't decorate. You know, we would get the call, well, we're not going to put up a tree this year. Your mother doesn't feel like it. And then you're, the one year that we hung one strand of light over the curtain rod as our holiday celebration, and my small son stared at the string of lights and kind of shaking his head was when I realized we really had to do something different. So we tacked on a weekend before we went home um, in New Mexico, where we stay a nice place. They decorate to the hilt. Tons of decorations. Very festive. And we go there for a few days of just quiet celebration with us. It's very festive in that way. We felt like we had that holiday before we got to the house. So you and, we the could, and we understood they couldn't decorate. It wasn't going to be the same. But we still got to feel like we had that holiday for us. So you're flexible. You, you made it. Basically, you, you made your expectations fit the situation, and that's a beautiful thing. And I think that's also a great segue into telling caregivers around holiday time, you know, don't aim for perfection. I mean, this will go awry. And, and, and just like Miguel Ruiz says in the Four Agreements, just do your best and be comfortable with that when you put your head down on the pillow. Now, if you've just joined us, you're listening to Take 10, part of Caregiver SOS On Air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host Carol Zerniel, and we are joined every week for this portion with Dr. Jamie Heisman, who is on our Caregiver SOS On Air hotline from Florida. And so what I've heard so far is we need to plan in advance. We may need to start some new traditions. 
um, and we need to limit those those expectations uh, that could be the seeds of resentment. And what was the last thing? Absolutely. You, and what was the line? Did I? Don't I think I missed. For, oh, aim oh, not aiming for perfection. That was yeah, not aiming for perfection, which. Caregivers tend to be perfectionists anyway year-round, and the holidays can actually put you into overdrive on perfectionism. Now, how much can you involve the care recipient in this, if it's mom and dad, uh, in making these decisions? That's a, that's a great point, Ron. I, you have to, number one, you have to involve them as much as they cognitively can actually be involved. And I think that if you leave people out or don't allow them to meet you halfway or as far as they can possibly come, um, you're going to rob them of a wonderful experience at the holidays as well. Uh, so you really have to play it by ear and understand where your loved one is. But whatever you do, don't forget them in the planning process. Make sure they're, they're a part of it. And, and this is where the festivities come. And, and, and to that point, make sure that you also can say no and yes. That no is not, let's say, selfish. It's actually self-empowering. So um, bring your loved one in. But make sure you have the boundaries and can say yes or no. Well, I think that conversation is important. You know, the story that I told, I appreciated the fact that my parents called me in advance and said, we're not going to have a tree this year. Um, so that I could adjust my expectations and thinking before I got there as opposed to walking in the door like your turkey friend, right. you know, and the turkey didn't smell right and nothing is the same. Now, don't I remember a Absolutely. story from you, Carol, of getting your mom involved peeling potatoes as part of the process? Well, I, you know, I was, thank you for remembering that. Um, the last year that my mother was home for the holiday, she was already living in assisted living, and we, we brought her home, and I was trying to think of some way, because she couldn't talk anymore. She would, did, her verbal skills were the first thing to go. And so I could tell that she really wanted to help. She was following me around the kitchen. And so I got some potatoes and a potato peeler out, and I said, would you like to help me peel potatoes? Well, that's good, strong motor memory there, you know, peeling potatoes over 50 years. She could be working at a McDonald's she, peeling yeah, potatoes. Yeah, she could have done it. Yeah, she could have gone to the military. And she sat down, and she peeled all the potatoes just fine, even though she's living in memory care. And I think she felt really good about herself that she contributed to the holiday festivities. And you felt good. And I felt good because she actually did something I really needed done. So that was great. You know, you bring up a great point. I know this is coming to a close here, but don't forget your immediate family. I know that your mom, you know, is the key and the center, but so often caregivers are so preoccupied with everybody in the extended family and how things are going to work out over holidays that they end up sometimes neglecting their own loved ones who are close by and later on feel, you know, guilt and whatnot. And so make sure that you're having everybody participate and that it's your immediate family, get them engaged and involved. Well, and that's a great point because you can, you can kind of divide up the, the different family members with the different needs to make sure that you covered all of your bases. Yeah, um, and that way you're also not bumping into each other. you got five people waiting on grandmom and nobody's paying attention to dad. Exactly, exactly. And also de-stress. Find a way to de-stress. Maybe find a support group or go meditate or journal or or find whatever blows your boat back, but make sure you're doing it during the holiday season. Got to stop you right there. Thank you, Dr. Jamie. Thank you, Carol. I'm Ron Aaron. Aaron, you've been listening to Take 10 on 930 AM. The answer at each and every one of our Caregiver SOS on-air programs, we end with Take 10. And if you want to hear all of these shows, it's simple. Just Google 
Caregiver SOS on air, and they will come up. Or go to caregiversos.org, and you can find podcasts as well. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS on air. Presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer.